Hey there, welcome back. You are listening to The DM with Audrey, Brianne, and Tyree. On last week's episode, we interviewed costume designer Leslie Cavanaugh, which you should definitely check out. And on this week's episode of The DM, we'll be interviewing costume designer Keita Alfred. Keita Alfred is a celebrated costume designer with works under her belt that include Resurrection, Soul Food, the TV show, and most recently, Sarah Polly's directed drama, Women Talking. We're thrilled to have Keita on hand today to talk about her varied experiences in the industry, how she jumpstarted her career, and some of the specifics and deep dive necessary for Women Talking. Welcome to the DM, Keita. And first off, can you tell us how you got your start? As a costume designer or, or in the costume department in general? Which would you, which would yeah. you like me to talk about? Maybe the department in general? Yeah. Well, yeah. I've been sewing since I was very young. Uh, I, I always tell the story that I think my mom taught me how to sew so that I would leave her alone on a Saturday afternoon and she could get some peace. So I started as, as many kids do making doll clothes and Barbie was my favorite. So I made a lot of Barbie clothes and always was drawn to uh, working with my hands, particularly sewing. I did uh, jewelry. I made jewelry, etc. when I was young. And then I also, from a very early age, had an interest in anthropology and the study of cultures and history and art history. So when, as I got older, and I was always that girl at the front of the class too, with her hand up, that annoying kid with, you know, so I loved a project. So when I got a little bit older and realized that I could combine all of these things, I thought that uh, costume design was the thing for me. Um, and thankfully was encouraged in many ways by many people. Um, I studied theater production at what used to be Ryerson University in Toronto. It's now called Toronto Metropolitan University, and uh, which has a very good theater production program. So I was there for several years and then got, because of the reputation of the course, because I was inexperienced at the time, I was able to land some really good jobs not long out of school. And not long after that, realized that I wasn't enough of a martyr to stay in theater and that I liked groceries too much. So I needed to make a little bit more money. Um, I was working at a, uh, what would you call it? An atelier, a, a sewing studio in Toronto in the early 80s that made costumes for big shows like Broadway shows and touring shows, but also did a lot of things for f- film because the, the film industry was even then was quite busy. And I met several designers coming in and out, bringing their designs in and, you know, checking in on their projects. And they were always, they always seemed to be looking for sewers. So I had been a sewer for, you know, most of my life at that point. And so I started sewing for film, which is how I got and made the switch over between theater and film and was lucky enough to have a chance to work in every position in the department after becoming a sewer because it was things were a little 
freer back then, and uh, everybody was expected to to know every part of the department, mm-hmm. really. And I was interested in other parts of the department besides sewing. So I became an assistant costume designer on the road to Avonlea, which is where I met Sarah. That was one of my mm-hmm. first jobs. And Sarah was the, was the star of the series. Oh, and I'm I was the assistant. That. Yeah, that was, a, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, I joke that I've known her since she was little. I mean, I try not to embarrass her, but I have <laughs> known her since she was little. <laughs> and she's always been the smart thoughtful, wonderful human being that you see today. Mm-hmm. So that was my start. S- always sewing, started as a sewer, moved through the department in every every aspect of the job. I loved working on set. I worked on set as a set supervisor for a long time, mm-hmm. and I really loved that as well. But then ended up combining all my interests, as I said, history and anthropology and, and, and psychology to a certain extent yeah. in, in costume design. And who are some of your either style icons or people that you look up to? Any, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a costume designer, but just who are those that you are looking at what they do or that you just enjoy their work? That's a really tough one, Audrey, because (laughs) I have so many sources of inspiration. Yeah. I'd say Um, one person in particular who was my mentor and taught me most of what I know about this business is a woman named Madeline Stewart, who was the costume designer on the road to Avonlea while I was working there. And she was, uh, I was her assistant. And Madeline taught me many, many things about design, but also about running a department as well. And uh, we're still friends and, and I'm very grateful to her for that. Uh, style wise, oh goodness. That's really hard. I've been speaking recently about watching the changing of the guard, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. I'm of a certain age and uh, I have a teenager who's 18 now who applied to fashion school and uh, ended up doing photography because he because there was a waiting list for the fashion program even though he got accepted. So watching his tastes develop that are very different from mine but very interesting. Um I I I would say my Influences are more from the art world. I, w- I wouldn't say particular fashion designers or costume designers or celebrities. Mm-hmm. Definitely not. Uh, I would say my inspiration comes more from art, from travel, definitely. Uh, from experiencing new cultures. I used to travel a lot in my 20s and 30s all over the world. Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. Uh, that's a tough question. More from more from life than from specifics, I would say. Art and history are are particular, and, and personality. I love I love characters. I love, I and I also love um, bravery. People who who are just out there living their best lives, whatever that means. Yeah. I, I'm really inspired by that. I'm in awe of it because I am not always that person. Yeah. Yes. So I find that really inspiring. I love your answer. Cause I was just going to say, you know, um, with previous guests, they usually do have some like 
people that they can kind of recall upon. But I, I love that you had said that it's about like the art and the history and the the personality. Like that's such an interesting answer to the question. We haven't heard that before. So oh, that's thank you. That's funny to see. I'll just quickly tell you um, when the last time we were in Los Angeles with the group for women talking, I had the chance to go to a, a convention called complex con, which mm -hmm. was happening in, uh, in Long Beach, which is a, it's streetwear. It's a lifestyle convention, I guess, streetwear, art, etc. which, um, was inspired because my son and I met some artists here in Toronto and just happened to be that I was going to be in LA at the same time. So I went not knowing really what to expect. My kid was like, mom, that's really cool. You have to do that, man. That's really cool. You should try and stay and do that. And I, you know, kind of rolled my eyes and then got there. I took Peter Costco, our production designer with me. And Peter's about the same age as I am. And we really didn't know what to expect. And we got there and our heads exploded. It was so fantastic. It was mm. so fantastic to see everybody, like I said, just being them in the best possible way. And it was so inspiring to me and so exciting for me, for my kid to know that he's coming up in that world and, and exploring those kind of things. So things, things like that is, is where I find my inspiration. That's, that's amazing. Um, so with costume design, what is the best part of the job and what is something that's not so, I guess, glamorous <laughs> a part of the job? Oh, so many of both of those things, Tyree. <laughs> Let me think. Best part of the job is collaboration. And, and my, maybe you've heard me say in other conversations that uh, this film was like no other for me as far as collaboration goes and having the respect and the um, support of not only Sarah and the producers, but uh, and having a rapport with the cast, etc. It was really amazing in that way. I find my most memorable experiences have been where I'm able to have a collaboration and have people trust me to translate their ideas into visuals. And sometimes not visuals as well. Sometimes it's something under the costume that you can't see that helps an actor do their job or helps them do their job better, you know, in, in a way that allows them to either forget about something else or to be reminded of something else. So it's not always the parts you see that, that are the most rewarding. But I would say collaboration and having the trust to translate someone's ideas. The least glamorous part is the exact opposite of that, actually, is working in an environment where you've been hired to do a creative job and not being allowed to do it. Mm -hmm. Being asked to replicate something that somebody's wife wore to a gala or yeah. buy a pair of jeans that somebody likes that have nothing to do with the character, but they have a certain label on them. Mm -hmm. That I find is the least glamorous. Mm -hmm. And and as I told you, I've done all the jobs in the department. So I'm talking scraping mud off of shoes, washing dance belts, like the whole deal. <laughs> and none of that compares in unpleasantness to being stifled, I yeah. think, because all of those other jobs have their merit and also have lessons in them. Mm -hmm. and so even, you know, on this show, 
in this film this summer, last summer, we had to get up very early to watch the sun come up, which was glorious and beautiful and breathtaking when we got there. But the the 1.30 in the morning was not so glamorous. Mm -hmm. But having worked on set for years, I was kind of used to that. And my son and I turned it into kind of a fun thing. He would stay up gaming all night and we'd go to a McDonald's drive-thru for breakfast or at 1.30 or 2 in the morning and have these wonderful conversations. And I would go off to work and he'd go back to bed. So even in that unglamorousness, there was something really lovely. That's such a nice thing to have <laughs> done, like a nice memory you guys were making. Yeah, it was. It, it really is. We still do it sometimes, which is a, a really lovely thing. So I try to turn the worst parts into the best parts. But uh, yeah, not not being listened to mm-hmm. and being stifled in your creativity, I'd say, is the least glamorous part. And it happens, unfortunately, a lot. Yeah. Mm. Well, since um, this, we're in December, which is crazy to say, but uh, coming out Christmas Day is women talking. So we want to make sure that we get some questions in about that. And the first would be, what were some of the things you did to keep the authenticity of the Mennonite colony in the film? Oh, make friends with Mennonites. (laughs) That's the main thing I did. (laughs) Be from Manitoba, I think. That was the main thing I did. I grew up in Winnipeg, which is about four hours north of of Fargo, of North Dakota. And it is central to the Mennonite community. The the Mennonite community has been there for a hundred and something years and one of the first places they came to in Canada. And Winnipeg in particular is a place where everybody is from somewhere else and, and celebrates that, except, of course, for our Indigenous population who have been there for thousands and thousands of years before all the rest of us horned in on their action, right? But um, it's a place where people celebrate each other's culture. So I was familiar with Mennonite culture on a very surface level. But in true Western fashion, it was just two phone calls away from finding somebody who who knew more or could teach me more about Mennonite culture or, or about the aspects of it and the history of it that I really was completely unfamiliar with. And so, like, I, I wasn't kidding. I, I made friends. I made phone calls and I made friends. And thanks to the graciousness and the generosity and the kindness of the Mennonite community, I was given access to histories and to manufacturing processes and ideas and vendors that I would never have had access to if I had just maybe even if I had started prepping here in Toronto even, although there is a a fairly large Russian Mennonite community southwest of Toronto. But um, so without the generosity of these people, uh, I would not have been able to make things as authentic as I was able to. And uh, because of their generosity, I made sure that I didn't take any license with what the clothing actually looked like in in res, out of respect for their history and their helpfulness and their graciousness so i was given access to the real deal all the way through i had people wow. making the real things for us i had vendors selling us the real fabrics telling us how to put the ribbons on the hats i had ladies doing that so it, it was through f- friendship and generosity that i was able to be so accurate that's incredible. That is amazing. That's so cool. Um, 
We know that Rooney Mara in particular is a fashion icon. Do actors sometimes have say in um, their costuming or did she have particular say or how do you work with Yes, actors? I, I always like the actors to have as much say as possible in a constructive way because there are times when it's not constructive. <laughs> um, working with Rooney was amazing and wonderful. And <laughs> it really was um, I was a little bit intimidated because she is such a style icon. And at our first meeting and our first fitting, our first meeting was actually by Zoom. And I couldn't quite get a measure of how we were going to work together. But I, I don't know if I mentioned to you that when we did the first fittings with all of the actors, I had a whole collection of real Mennonite dresses bought from real Mennonite women who had lived in them for many years. And... So at each first fitting, we would put one of those dresses on the actor to give them an idea of how they would feel and, you know, how they could, whether they could move, what they wanted augmented or subtracted, et cetera, et cetera. And Rooney put it on and I, I won't, I won't go too far into telling you her reaction because that's her story, but it was one of the nicest fittings I've ever had. And watching her react to this very specific garment, knowing that she spends a lot of her life in front of cameras and and, uh, being scrutinized as a fashion icon. I think I I could go so far as to say it was one of the best fittings either of us have ever had. And from that first meeting in person, I loved every minute of working with Rooney and and her interpretation of the things that we were doing for her character and the the subtleties of of the way it fit and and the way it didn't in a lot of cases the way it you know didn't fit on purpose she was all in and so was I and that that was a really wonderful experience yeah. so lovely to hear um I'm curious so given any kind of limitations um, and the fact that like Mennonites, it's, it seems to be that it's like form and function uh, first. How was the women talking wardrobe different from films where you are, you're working with more accessible garments, be it retail or just um, in a more modern society? That's a great question, Audrey. I love that question because the, I sometimes joke that these dresses were a cross between an acting exercise and a therapy session for the actors, because there was no leeway with them. There was no adding lace. There was no changing the buttons. There was no nipping the waist in. There were th- These dresses are very specifically made to fit a certain way and to also make the wearer be reminded of their place in their society and in their faith. So there was very, very little room for expression uh, or individuality even. So we had to focus on color and fit and pattern to to tell stories about characters that normally you could put somebody in a evening gown or head full of jewelry or a corset or something. There was there was none of that. So working with the actors and with Sarah we found ways to very subtly, almost subconsciously, I would say, 
differentiate the characters by color, by mood, by scale of pattern on their dress. Because also you'll note that the the color is very desaturated in the film. So things that would be very vibrant normally were not. Mm-hmm. And colors changed and patterns disappeared. So it was it was very challenging in one respect. And in another way, it was kind of freeing because we had rules to live within and we could focus more on character, really, now that you think of it, than, than visuals and figure out both the actors and I had to think about what subtleties would would come through in in their performances and how our department could help augment what they wanted to do you know how what does it feel like to be a farm wife who's had 15 children and works hard labor every day and has no electricity and might be nursing five kids and you know under the age of five at the same time so how does that make your body feel how do you hold yourself what do your clothes look like after a life of of that kind of life, no luxury, no augmentation, no ostentation. Mm-hmm. So I think limitations are very helpful to creativity a lot of the time. And so all of us, including Sarah and Luke, our DP, with the colors, took on that challenge and had really wonderful discussions about how we could express what we needed to within the very narrow parameters that were uh, available to us. So it, it was harder and it was also easier. That, that's a kind of a cop-out answer, but <laughs> it's not like, well, funnily, we had this one joke in our department though, because sometimes, you know, you're doing a period piece or space or, you know, sci-fi and a producer or director will say, well, can't you just get me a blah, 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 blah. Like, and, and costumers, I was like, oh, let me, I'll be right back. I'm just going to this, you know, space uniform store. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> or the pirate store, or that you know, it's a big joke in our department. But <laughs> in this case, we actually could go to the Mennonite dress store <laughs> and get things and get accessories. So that was kind of we had to kind of watch what we said because <laughs> yeah. we could do that, which is you know not like going to the mall certainly, but uh, it was kind of hilarious in this case. Um, so, um, as we know, you know, Sarah Polly is a really gifted actress and she's been on screen a long time since she was little. Did that have any sort of, did it aid, do you feel like in her having experience, having been an actor in wardrobe with your job, like the two of you, um, coming together on this film for the wardrobe? Did she have different perspective that you, you liked since she's an actor herself? Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, in the most positive way. When Sarah was a child, I spent many, many hours in fittings with her. And she was, you know, the road to Avonlea was very frilly and poofy, and it was a period piece. And so Sarah has been in many, 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 many fittings of all kinds. And it absolutely made a difference for our experience. It made a difference in that she had trust in what I was doing, which is a huge component of the relationship between a costume designer and a director. She knew what it was like to stand for hours in a fitting. She knew what it was like to be restricted by a costume or made free by a costume. Sarah was quite involved, I would say, in that process, in this 
particular film, which was really, really great. She also, I think, sometimes helped translate my job to the actors who maybe had not always had positive experiences in with the costume department or were used to a certain, a different kind of encounter with the costume department. Yes, Sarah's time as an actor was an absolute blessing to us for many, many reasons. That's yeah, awesome. That's great. Um, so what is the first thing or like what are the first things that you do when you sign on to a new project? Oh, research, research, mm-hmm. research, research, research. I love research. I, uh, I I told you I used to be interested in anthropology and art history and all those sort of things. And, and I was that girl who wanted to do the, who volunteered to do an extra project, you know, hand up, pick me, pick me. I was definitely a pick me girl in school, but it, it's paid off because that's what I do for a living now. And I love that part of doing it. So research is, is the first. If it's based on a particular written work as this film was, I do a lot of reading. That's also one of my interests. And then you were asking me about inspiration earlier. And then I just sometimes, depends on the film, then I usually just take myself out into the world as best I can, whether that's to a particular community or to museums or to music venues even. I like to be on the streets soaking in inspiration and very often it's a small thing that has absolutely nothing to do with the very particular subject matter of the story you're working on that will trigger an idea the way somebody walks the the smell of some food from somewhere that makes you think about some woman in her home cooking something and what her apron would look like or it's really really for me it's really obscure pieces of inspiration like that. So research is my biggest one. And even if it's a even if it's a go and buy it all at the mall kind of show, which I've done a number of, I still like to have in my mind the backstory of of inspiration or of characters I know or have seen or experienced. Uh, and then to use that in collaboration with the actors in particular, sometimes with the directors as well. This film was a particularly wonderful experience in being able to collaborate. But often it's more important that I have a rapport with the actors to help them express what they want to in really weird, subtle ways. Like just this one quick one. I I worked on a TV movie years ago called The Sheldon Kennedy Story, and it was about... uh, it was a true story about a, a hockey player, a Canadian hockey player who was sexually abused by his coach for many, many years. And the actor playing the coach, I think was Robert Wisden is what I want to say. And I had one of the best fittings I've ever had with him talking about how he wanted something silky against his body under his costume, just to remind him of that perverted, you know. So so psychological discussions like that are really what, inspire me and help me work little weird details yeah. like that mm. oh that's really interesting, interesting to go there yeah it's it was it was we had some great conversations and yeah. and i had many similar to that on women talking because we did 
some body augmentation. I won't say where and with who, mm -hmm. but um, how does it feel to have had 15 children? How do you carry yourself? How do your clothes fit? Mm -hmm. How inconvenient is, is it to not have pockets? Does that make you frustrated? Does that come out somewhere else? So the little subtleties like that are, are important. Wow. So this segues perfectly into the next question because are there details or aspects of every job that you feel is most important to costume design? Like specifically about costuming work, are there details or aspects that from job to job seem to be the like that key element or that most important thing to zero in on? Uh, character, I would say. Fleshing out character with the actor and with the director, of course. But I also need to have my backstories in order to share and uh, complement those of, of the others I'm working with. Mm -hmm. And like I said, they're not always, they're, they're very, very rarely something like, oh, well, we must get in a Balenciaga or we must, you know, so-and-so must be always in the heels. It's, it's almost never that. For, for me, the important thing that I take from job to job is, uh, is the personality in the clothes and the the psychology behind it? I mm -hmm. that that's the most important for me, and I really like doing projects that have really deep character and and uh, and rich characters, character backgrounds. Rather than, I mean, I, I love a sequin, don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I love sequins. Don't get me wrong. I was all about some sequins and Barbie and I spent many months with sequins and, in my youth. But uh, the psychology of it is the most important for me. Yeah. So if you weren't a costume designer, what do you think that you would be doing as an alternative profession? Um, I would be an architect, hmm. which... I'm of an age that uh, just on the borderline of a time when girls weren't encouraged to do that sort of thing. And I didn't really know that I could do that sort of thing. I would be an architect. I would be an anthropologist digging in the desert somewhere probably, <laughs> or, or spending hours and hours in museums. Uh, those are the big two, I think. Yes. Architect, both, both of them involve, pencil crayons to some degree so <laughs> I think that's, that's why I was just curious I'm throwing in an extra question because we talk so much about you know anthropology and stuff what about that interested you you know like and how did that translate into into fashion because it's it's really is such different uh, spectrums, you know, going from history and stuff to to costuming and fashion design. Like, how how do those two? I guess my question is, how do those two worlds merge and and marry one another? Well, well I think it's for me, it's always about um, studying. Like I was telling you earlier in the other question, studying characters, studying people, studying how they express themselves, and and anthropology archaeology archaeology is slightly different in that you're discovering physical worlds as it were in many cases mm -hmm. anthropology is the study of humans and of cultures really 
So I've always found that fascinating. In the early 90s, I, I lived in Australia for a while and I worked on, but never brought to fruition, a, a program about, it was it has a, kind of a terrible name, but it made sense. At the time, it was going to be called Happy in Public, uh, HIP, Happy in Public. And it, and it basically was going to explore what it takes for people to express themselves in the way that they want to. And, and why do people express themselves in certain ways? And how does that relate to fashion or to culture or to um, history or um, what's the word? C- culture isn't really the word I want entirely. Well, I, guess, I guess it is, but tradition, mm-hmm. I, I think, or, or the fight against those things. So I really wanted to explore artists and ideas that did merge all of the things. And that's like I was saying how, why I, I love watching people on the street. And there's so many videos now about what, it, what are they wearing in Paris and street, you know, streetwear in New York. And, but those things are really fascinating to me because why can one person be perfectly confident in a garbage bag and silver sparkly heels and another seems really uncomfortable in a very traditional suit. What does that say about how they present themselves to the world? I'm fascinated by how people present themselves to the world. So I think that's where the intersection comes for me is yeah. the, the outer shell and what people do or don't do mm-hmm. to present themselves to the world in their context. You have me looking at fashion in such a different way. Like I really, really love that. That's why I wanted to ask a little bit more about it because I, I have never ever thought of those two things as having um, common ground or any sort of connection. Uh-huh. And so now that I've spoken with you, like I'm going to remember that moving forward. It's going to be interesting. Uh, that's interesting. I'm so glad to hear you say that. And here's a little tip for you then. Yeah. You can always tell people by their shoes. shoes and now you'll notice it okay you'll notice it people will tell you who they are by the kind of shoes they wear it speaks volumes and and I'm not talking about what brand they wear although to a certain extent it's that I'm talking about are their shoes polished are they not do they fit are they do they have nothing to do with the rest of the things that they're wearing are they functional have they just come from some job? It's very, very interesting once you start to notice details like that. Yeah. Because for me, my shoes are always scuffed. Always. I can. I rarely treat myself to a very expensive pair of shoes. But if I do, it'll be a mess. <laughs> the shoes will be a mess. Because that's just, that's just me. That's how I live. That's my... I appreciate the beauty in that object. And I love shoes. I'm not a Imelda Marcos, but... I love beautiful, I love them as a beautiful piece of work, a piece mm-hmm. of art. But I got stuff to do. So I'm not <laughs> worried that my <laughs> that my Air Force Ones are, you know, spiffy white or my whatever. So people can tell volumes about me by my shoes. Yeah. It, it's something to watch. And there's another thing. It's also, um, in my experience, this is not always the case, but people who are very, very comfortable with their own success, I will say, mm-hmm. or more specifically with their own wealth, mm-hmm. are usually pretty disheveled. 
because they've got other things to think about <laughs> and, and other things that they care about. You know, that sort of, I have beautiful things because I can afford beautiful things. I wear them all the time because they're beautiful and they're quality, as opposed to I wear a new suit every day. I have high heel. I have, I'm completely in debt because all of my money has gone to my outer shell. So you get out there and start <laughs> looking at people in a different way. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I wear comfortable shoes. I usually wear like a tennis shoe, so I like yeah. being comfortable. <laughs> yep, that's me too. You know. Me so too. the last question, what is next for Keita Alfred and where can our listeners follow you? Well, I am right at before I came to talk to you guys, I am uh, I was hauling myself by the scruff of the neck into the 21st century by updating my Instagram account and learning how to do that. Uh, which is quite exciting. And it takes a lot of teenagers to make that happen. Uh, I hopefully have a project in Winnipeg again uh, in the new year, which is a really interesting, small and beautiful project uh, with a, a young director that is another story about women coming into their own. And it's set in Winnipeg in the winter, in the cold. Uh, It has to do with clashes of culture. It has to do with um, women in middle age. It has to do with a middle-aged woman asserting herself and finding herself and coming into her own in a new culture and and learning that she's powerful. Um, So I never say I'm on it until I've signed the papers, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm really looking forward to mind melding with the director of mm-hmm. this new project because he's a really clever beautiful mind mm-hmm. which I've been lucky enough to work with a few in the last little while yeah uh, I jokingly say I only work with people I love but I only have to love you for 10 minutes and if it works then you know I'm yeah. I'm too old to be miserable at work so mm-hmm. I the universe has sent me lovely things in the last since I made that decision to only work with people I love so yeah. hopefully that will be happening in the new year. And uh, other than that, I'm not sure right now. Well, there's one, one month at a time at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Like this is, we always are so blown away when we have such esteemed personalities and people come on to the podcast and give us their time. And not just that, you guys give lovely stories and a a wealth of knowledge to our viewership. And so I'm thanking you from the audience and thanking you from the bottom of our hearts because it's, it just always means so much. And we've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I have too. Well, thank you so much, Audrey and Tyree. It was so nice speaking with you again. I'm glad the audience doesn't know that we got a chance to to meet before and have a little chat, but I've been looking forward to this as well. And uh, and it's so exciting to hear how you guys are promoting new things and new ideas to your, to your audience. And I, I look forward to hearing more from you guys. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the DM with Autobrian and Tyree where we had an interview with costume designer Keita Alfred. You'll find links to Keita's social media pages in the description box below. A special thank you to Nearby Sound for our theme song. 
If you enjoyed the show, please introduce your friends to our work, rate, review, and follow. Check us out on thedm.net or on Instagram at at Audrey Brienne and at Tyree Style. The DM is produced by Joe Passarelli, Audrey Brienne, and Tyree.